Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Steve, uh, great to be talking to you this afternoon. How is everything in your world, my good friend? It's going pretty well, as good as it can be at this time of year. I'm really excited for today's conversation with Shalane Flanagan. Before we get to it, just asking listeners, if you can, please subscribe, rate, review. It helps our podcast so much in terms of getting listeners, getting these conversations to go across the internet. So please do so. And with that, Brad, what are we talking about? So as you mentioned today, we've got our good friend and regular guest, Shalane Flanagan, back on the podcast. Um, we have a really far-reaching conversation. I think you all are going to love it. We touch on transitions in life and how to manage them. We touch on mental health and particularly the sense of existential distress or loss of purpose that can come with big life transitions and how hard that can be, how normal that is, and how to work through it. We talk uh, a fair amount about imposter syndrome. We talk a little bit about parenting, and it wouldn't be a conversation with Shalane if we didn't also touch on running. Um, so really, really, really great conversation. Um, and Shalane's just the best. So we're thrilled to have her back on the show. Um, we hope that you guys love it. So with no further ado, here is our conversation with the one and only Shalane Flanagan. Shalane, great to have you back on the Growth Equation podcast. Um, really appreciate you joining us yet again. How is everything in your world? Yeah, thanks for having me back on to chat. Um, everything is going pretty good. Um, considering uh, the times that we're in, everything is, uh, you know, advancing, I think, in terms of just being busier and a little more productive um, and navigating what the next year is going to look like and kind of, you know, trying to set some plans in motion of what is to come in 21, but also obviously very cautious because we know things can change. So <laughs> trying to embrace the unknown, but um, plan for the best here. I love it. So that that kind of gets us into one of the topics that we want to talk about, which is transitions, which maybe your answer is prepare for the unknown, but, you know, embrace what you can. But, you know, as someone who has gone through a lot of transitions lately from runner to coach um, to mother, what do you think are the things that um, or let's start with this. What were the things that you really struggled with? in making those transitions? Um, well, starting with, you know, being an athlete, I think the hardest part uh, was just trying to figure out, well, what's my, my next purpose in life? You know, being an athlete is such a singular focus and you have to be all in to be great at, at that job. Um, and every waking minute and hour and day and year is kind of set towards, you know, in my case, uh, making it to the Olympics or winning a major marathon title. Those were my goals. And that sense of purpose was so strong and ran so deep for so many years. Um, fortunately, you know, I, I had 
you know, great mentors and a family that planted the seed quite early that there's obviously going to be a transition and there's going to be an end um, to athletics and that it's not a forever thing at that level, at the elite level. But um, even as much as you prepare for it uh, mentally for that transition, it's still regardless, very hard. And I felt really fortunate that I did have the goal of becoming a coach once I was done as an athlete. But that being said, it's just still uncomfortable. It's still really hard. And I think the last year, um, now that I have time to step back and look at it, you know, I retired about a year ago last October, but I had about a year transition of um, two knee surgeries. So I couldn't run, which to me is like my form of therapy and mental health. So that was taken away from me coupled with the fact that I didn't know uh, when exactly I was going to retire and switch to coaching. It was kind of an unknown. I was trying to feel out when that was going to happen. So I call it like the year of purgatory where I was just kind of left in this weird space of not setting my intentions. And for me, I mean, everyone's different, but I needed that conclusion and that date of saying like, I am done with athletics in order to move on. Um, and the good thing is that I didn't have any regrets with my career. I felt very fulfilled in what I had achieved, I exceeded all my expectations when I, you know, started out as a little girl running. Um, I exceeded whatever thought I was gonna, you know, hope for myself and dream and achieve. But, um, like I said, regardless, it's always uncomfortable. And I think just like acknowledging that it's hard and really leaning into the support system was huge for me. Um, but still that all being said, I think now looking back, I still had moments of, Definitely probably some low grade depression um, and days that were just really dark thoughts and really uncomfortable, bad feelings. Um, I think at the time I, I didn't want to admit that to myself that I was feeling really depressed. But now looking back and how much happier I feel on a daily basis now, I can kind of say, yeah, I think I had <laughs> some depression. And um, I think it was really highlighted well for me uh, recently. I don't know if you guys watch this, but on HBO. There was this great documentary called The Weight of Gold, and it specifically featured Michael Phelps, as we all know, this uh, incredible swimmer, Olympic swimmer, and most gold medals, I think, ever by an Olympian, and um, some other athletes like Apollo Ono, and um, they all went into how, you know, the transition when uh, being an athlete is concluded. It's, it's super uncomfortable. And a lot of people do fall into depression because they don't know what to do with themselves next. They have, you know, this, they don't, their question is what's my purpose now? And people really struggle with it. So yeah, that being said, um, switching to a coach, um, once I finally retired, um, I was very excited about it, but then it was also once I finally accepted that my running career is over, uh, there's also that transition of, all of a sudden being in this authoritative role um, with the athletes. And some of these athletes were friends and colleagues and transitioning into being a person of authority and then telling basically my friends what to do could also be a little uncomfortable and awkward. <laughs> Fortunately, most of the athletes on my team are significantly younger than me now. Um, so every time we get like new athletes, it feels a little bit easier um, to be coach Shalane instead of just, you know, friend and teammate Shalane. Um, and, you know, this whole year has been an unprecedented year and it's my first year of coaching uh, with COVID and having to navigate uh, the athletes through a really tough period where they had their ultimate goal and my goal as a coach to help my athletes make Olympic teams. That was taken away and 
having to deal with the grief and sadness of losing that goal for all of us. You know, even as coaches, we grieve the loss of the dreams for our athletes. And, you know, I know, Steve, you can talk to that a bit. Obviously, with the NCAA athletes, they're experiencing that. And we were saying uh, before we started how just the unknown and the changing and the variability is extremely hard. They'd rather know cold cut, hey, is there a season or not? Um, they'd rather have that than the yes and no's and the ups and downs. Um, so, yeah, this this whole first year as a coach was also um, challenging um, in the sense that we've never experienced anything like this ever in the really um, in our lifetime. And so trying to navigate all of that while being a first year coach. Um, and then on top of that, to me, a big blessing and distraction this year was becoming a mom, to be honest, um, because the Olympics were taken away. I was granted this gift and this silver lining of having an abundance of time with my newborn son, Jack. And I think for me, that has been such a healthy distraction and one I never would have seen coming. And, um, you know, a lot of people say how this has just been like, they can't wait for this year to be over. And it's been such a terrible year. But in a way, it's been one of the biggest years of growth for me and actually a huge year of just a lot of happiness um, on a personal level. Um, and, you know, some major milestone achievements have been achieved despite, you know, all this negativity. But as a world and as a nation, there's obviously been a lot of loss. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, you know, insensitive to that, but it's been, it's been, let's put it this way. It's been a really strange year. I've had so many highs and lows that have been pretty extreme. So that's a long winded story of my There is. Yeah. There's so much, um, (laughs) great stuff to unpack there. I, um, I'm jotting down some notes. I want to talk about coaching and moving into coaching and feelings of imposter syndrome in, in with parenting and just how you, hold all these emotions at once, as you were saying at the end there, of some really high highs, but also some really low lows. But even before that, coming back to transitions, because uh, I think it's it's really important to, to, to note those feelings of depression, because a lot of people right now are going through transitions. And on multiple scales, there are people that are losing their jobs, there are people that are, for the first time, scared about losing their health. There are people who know people that have lost their health due to COVID. There are people that have lost their lives. And without being dramatic, I would say going from being a world-class caliber athlete to retirement is probably second only to the transition of losing a loved one. And I haven't yet had kids move out of the house. I can imagine that's also a huge transition. Um, and, you know, I guess an entrepreneur, maybe with a company that shuts down, like it's on that scale, if not greater. So you mentioned that when you were in the midst of it, you didn't necessarily think that anything was so wrong. But now looking back, what I'm hearing you say is that you realized there was a particular gray area. Are you comfortable sharing a little bit more about what was going on inside your your mind and your emotions during that gray area? And then if there were specific things that you did that helped you work your way through that? And or was it just a matter of hanging in there and time running its course? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, time has a way of 
for sure healing things. And now that I can take a step back and retrospectively look back on the previous year, um, there were, like I described, some dark days where I was just like, I I never in my life had asked myself this, um, but like, well, what's the point of my life now? Like, why why do I exist anymore? Like, I I cre- I had this service, you know, a strong sense of service, and that was um, to inspire people through my running. And now that that's concluded, like, what's the point of anything that I do now? Um, and I there's that seems really silly because I if I could list like right now, like 10 other amazing reasons of why I should exist and why there's purpose in my life. But at the time it just felt like really, um, just, just like very extreme. Like that was it. Like, you know, my service to the world was running and, um, that's what I was good at. And maybe it's the only thing I'm good at. And, you know, now that it's over and not that I didn't want to, it's not that I wanted to keep running, but now that that's over, like what's, what's the point of my existence? Um, so I mean, that's kind of a harsh way to like, think of yourself, right, that you only have one purpose, and that's it. Um, And that you really don't maybe like, maybe I was thinking things along the lines of just like not mattering anymore. And if I don't matter to people, like, why am I here? Um, And so to me, those are kind of dark thoughts. Um, And I realize now, like, those weren't, those were not healthy, and those weren't good. Um, And I think just through time and unfortunately you just kind of have to like sit with that. And there's like good and bad days. Um, some that were like just felt heavier and darker than others. Um, but I think just with time, I think things just lifted and I felt better and better once I found more purpose, once I found, uh, more of a routine. And I think that's the hard thing for with COVID too, is just like people's routines are completely just thrown out the window and having to recreate, you know, a routine for their life. And being an athlete, I was so routine oriented, like to the minute I could tell you where I was on any given day, it was so dialed in. Um, and having that routine taken away, I think also hurt. And then, like I said, not being able to run, which was like therapeutic to me and just like a good boost of feel good feelings by exercise. And for me, that's just like, my drug of choice, um, you know, swimming or biking just don't, aren't the same to me, even though it is technically moving my body, um, just wasn't the same. And I really missed running quite a bit too. So I was like mourning the loss of just not being able to get outside and, and run and move my body. That just makes me happy. Um, but yeah, you know, I leaned into, you know, people like you, Brad, and to my family. Um, but I don't think, like I said, I was able to acknowledge that I was in such a dark place until like, you know, months, if not a year later. I'm so glad that you're sharing this, Shalane. And thank you for, for being so vulnerable and sharing that. Because I think that something that really catches driven, high achievers, high performers, I'll even say people that love life off guard, are is particularly that thought. Like, what's the point of it all? What's my purpose? Is there any meaning? Because we are told this story, and it's by and large true, that having a purpose and having a sense of meaning in life is so imperative and so important. It was an entire section in our first book, right? Peak performance, purpose. And that is true, But that attachment to purpose can sometimes get in the way during periods of transition. And what I mean by that is that it's okay to have periods where you don't have a purpose. 
in where things do feel a little bit meaningless. Um, and to not judge yourself in those periods and to not necessarily say, you know, oh crap, like now I don't have a purpose and I'm, and I should have a purpose. There's this, uh, Franciscan friar that I love named Richard Rohr. He's done all kinds of writing and he talks about the cycle of order, disorder, reorder. And in those periods of disorder, just allowing yourself to feel lost in being okay with that. Um, but how hard that must be for someone like you, especially that came from such structure and routine of competing at the level that you did. Yeah, t- completely. Um, I just, you know, I'm happy to share my struggles. Um, you know, I don't think like I could have acknowledged that a year ago talking to you, but I feel like taking a step back and seeing the growth um, over the last year. And it's crazy because I was just like so desperate to try to figure out what what was wrong with me. So I was listening to like every podcast, trying to read every book, <laughs> um, trying to figure out how I could um, find that purpose again and, and not feel so crappy. <laughs> so transitioning a little bit from that point, Shalane, when, when you made the transition into coaching, if you can think back, was it did it feel like it was jumping and now suddenly you're feeling good again you feel like you have that meaning back those dark days those dark thoughts um just kind of evaporated or was it more of a gradual coming into that role and i guess if i if i frame it in terms of that order disorder reorder framework we know all about the order you're crushing it you're you know new york city marathon champion we just heard about the disorder, which is very discombobulating. And now the reorder, you're coaching and we'll get into later, you're a mom. Um, how did that period happen? Yeah. In terms of coaching, I think you referenced this phrase earlier. Um, I think I definitely felt uh, imposter syndrome. <laughs> like all of a sudden I'm handed this coaching role and even though I'd been a mentor um, while I was an athlete at BTC, and I definitely was, you know, kind of like a mom and and bossy, and and you know, tried to definitely help my my teammates and such, it still um, was uncomfortable. All of a sudden, that that change of roles, even though I wanted it, uh, I think I still was trying to figure out what my role was as a coach within this Bowerman Track Club program. Uh, We have Jerry and Pascal who have been at this for a long time now and have their distinct roles and what um, some autonomy over certain things that were distinctly theirs. And so trying to figure out where I fit in to the team and navigating uh, what I'm good at as a coach and really then figuring out if I'm good at this, okay, then I need to lean into that more and where can I improve and I think this whole year has been completely figuring out who I am as a coach. And just because, you know, I was an athlete that was uh, a mentor, there's definitely a distinction between all of a sudden then being a full-time coach. Uh, I didn't have as much time with the athletes because I couldn't run. And I feel like that's where I was really good at getting to know the athletes better is through some runs. Um, having time with them outside of practice was really essential. And because I couldn't run and then we had COVID, it was just hard to communicate as much 
you know, we had Zoom calls and texting and phone calls, but I definitely like in person more if I can. And I feel like I really get the most out of my athletes if I can communicate effectively in person. So like I said, there's been a huge learning curve and I think assessing my strengths and where I fit and um, just gaining more autonomy um, within our program of what I serve and my purpose. Because, um, you know, like, for example, like Pascal is really good at hurdling. Um, he was a steeplechaser, an Olympic steeplechaser, American record holder. And so he just has this great insight into all of our steeplechasers and that's kind of like really like his thing. And then he's really great at core. Um, and, you know, I started to figure out and obviously Jerry's good at almost everything. So he has his hands in every uh, cookie jar. But, you know, I, I realized what my assets were this year distinctively to me and kind of where I have some autonomy is when athletes are injured, I'm and I've basically had almost every injury there is to have. So I have this big encyclopedia and wealth of knowledge of any p- little niggle like that anyone has ever had on the team, I've basically had it. So, uh, I, you know, go into my encyclopedia and look up, you know, how I dealt with it. And so I'm really good at, if I could say, you know, pat myself on the back is how to help athletes navigate injuries, which are tough. Um, it's a hard time and then how to get them out of the injury and then through the rehab and then also get them backhanded off to Jerry by doing some initial workouts to ease them back into fitness and training. And so I'll write up the protocol for the rehab and, uh, you know, what they're doing in the pool or the elliptical. And then how do we transition that into real running again? And then, you know, a couple weeks worth of running and some of the workouts that I designed for them. And then I hand them off to Jerry, who then throws them into the group, you know, back again. So just learning like where I fit, uh, was something to figure out this year um, because we obviously have three of us and we all have good strengths and weaknesses. And, um, you know, communication is one thing that I think is a strength that I check up on, you know, the injured athletes are always having the hardest time. And if they feel neglected, it's, it's really hard uh, time period. So having someone check up on them, you know, every day really, I think makes a big difference in their recovery. So you have, Two of the best coaches on the planet that you're, you're joining, right? And you yourself are coming from being one of the best athletes on the planet. Like, how in the world do you find that clarity amongst the three of you that you all can work together, you know, put your egos aside and do what's best for the athlete? I mean, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I think. I, I, I a bit just got thrown in and just, it was kind of like sink or swim, like figure out what you're good at, Shalane, and, and contribute. So, um, as great of mentors as Jerry and Pascal are, um, we just have a big team. So they're navigating helping our athletes first and foremost. So I think it was like, Shalane, figure out where you're needed and step up to the plate and do your job. And, um, so there wasn't like a lot of, a ton of guidance, like, Hey, Shalane, you should do this or you should do that. I wasn't, I haven't been told like what to do. And I think I was waiting. I think there was like this misinterpretation on my end of thinking like, oh, they should be telling me what, where I need to step up and help. And I realized one day, like, you know what? I just need to step up and do the job. Don't ask, just do. And where you're needed, step into that role and do the best job you can. Ask for help and assistance if you need it from them. But really, it's just like you see a problem, go and attack it. And so there's no ego. Like everyone just 
wants everyone to be taken care of. And like I said, we do have a big team. We have like basically 20 athletes and at a high level and they all need care uh, all the time. So it's a big job. And I'm happy that there's three of us because we are big and they deserve a lot of attention and they need it. So um, yeah, I guess my, my mindset going into coaching was like, oh, I'm going to be told what to do. And um, but that's not the case. It's really just step up and work hard and, uh, you know, ask for help when you need it. But if you see a problem, just attack it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that uh, you were able to kind of figure that out. You know, going back on imposter syndrome a little bit, this is really fascinating to me because, again, here we have someone who's been highly successful, like was obviously very confident in what you were doing in terms of performance. And now you go into this role where you're you're working with athletes who are trying to achieve what you did or better. And without maybe the years and decades of coaching experience, where do you think that imposter syndrome came from? Was it from more internal? Was it more of external pressure? Was it, you know, you making that transition from friends with the athletes to authority figure? And then, you may, you know, maybe talk about a little bit on how you kind of uh, overcame that. Yeah. So I think it's all of it. I, all of us, I think it hit me like I felt like a little bit of an imposter when I went to like the U.S. championships and to the world championships like last summer and people were calling me coach. And I'm like, I would look around. I'm like, wait, what coach are they talking about? I'm like, oh, that's me. Like they're referencing me. And um, so the, clearly I felt like a little bit uncomfortable, like in that transition and acknowledging that I truly was a coach. Like, I don't know why I felt that way, but I think with time and feeling like the athletes, um, respect me and respond to me. And it probably was that a lot of them were teammates of mine. So all of a sudden that role, I felt a little bit uncomfortable, uh, being authoritative and kind of really telling them, um, certain things maybe they didn't want to hear, uh, to just be effective. I think that just put me in a position of feeling like, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm used to being their friend, used to being their friend. And now all of a sudden they look at me as like a friend, but also it's just different now. The dynamics have changed. So. Yeah, it's, it, I, I also wanted to dive into the imposter syndrome because it, it's on my mind a little, and we can include this in the show notes. But just yesterday, ESPN published this, what I thought was a really wonderful article on the Miami Heat basketball team and their head coach, Eric Spolstra, in his relationship with Duncan Robinson. And I didn't know any of this about Eric Spolstra, the coach. So he started his career as a video person for the Heat and rose up to be their head coach. And he had coached LeBron, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh, these superstars, to win, I think it's three championships, either two or three. I'm not a huge basketball fan, but championships, multiples. And then they left. And he just had this crushing weight of pressure on him. And now, fast forward to today, he have this player named Duncan Robinson, who didn't even start his senior year of college got undrafted, signed with the Heat, and is now starting making three-pointers on this playoff team. And the whole story was about how Eric Spolstra could relate to Duncan Robinson, because even though Spolstra wasn't a 
former player, he had that feeling of imposter syndrome that he could then share with Robinson and say, hey, you just have to show up and get over it. So it's a lot of preface for my question, which is, do you lean on your ability to relate with the athletes often because you walked this similar road and you know what it feels like to train that hard and to care so deeply about winning and to be so in touch with your body that you feel every niggle? Or do you try to remove that so you're not necessarily connecting with them on that level, but much more from a coach looking down? Mm, That's a good question. (laughs) I think my coaching style is evolving, but I think I lean into knowing what I know at the moment. And I would say I offer a level of relatability that is different than Jerry and Pascal. They're further removed from being athletes. And I feel that when the athletes are struggling, they probably come to me more because they know that I understand the struggle because I'm so close to it. And they saw me struggle as an athlete and they just, um, I think they feel comforted by the fact that they can talk to me because they know I've been through what it feels like to run a hundred mile weeks, what it feels like to be in the dumps with an injury, um, to feel extremely tired, um, to be worried or stressed or pressure. It's, it's, it's so fresh in my, in my legs and in my, you know, mind and in my heart, all of those experiences are so still fresh to me, um, that I feel like that's what, is a strength of mine for sure in my coaching style is that I have a lot of compassion for what they go through. Um, and I hope that's a strength. <laughs> I mean, hopefully I'm not too soft on them, but to be honest, these type of athletes in general need to always be held back and not pushed forward. So if anything, um, I'm the one always advocating for a day off or, you know, nipping a, an injury in the bud, um, by, you know, changing the the training plan. Um, so I hope that that's what I can offer in general is just a voice of reason um, because of my, my relatability is just so fresh right now. So you're in a very unique situation where you're one of only a, a handful of, of professional women coaches in the world of track and field. You know, on the distance running side, I can think of Julie Henner comes off the top of my head, but you're now put in this situation where you're, you know, front and center and it's, you know, women in head or women in coaching positions at the professional level, women in head coaching positions at the collegiate level is something the sport has often struggled with. What do you feel is your responsibility and where do you think, like, how do we get better at this or open avenues for others in the future? Um, yeah, Julie Henner, you know, was the only professional female coach that I remember witnessing while I was an athlete. And she coached Jenny Simpson to a world championship in the 1500 meters. And um, I remember thinking to myself, like, she's the only female like at this track (laughs) other than the female athletes. Um, and I noticed that early on and I remember thinking like, why isn't it more popular to be in this profession? And then I started looking at the NCAA and, um, 
you know, the lack of females. And um, I don't know that I have an answer to why. Um, I know that NCAA can be a bit hard on women, um, especially if they have children and the amount of travel that's required and recruiting. Um, it's just, it's a very time consuming job and not as much room for family. Um, if you have multiple kids and just depends on your support system and how successful you can be, um, trying to do both. So I know that that's something to navigate. And then, you know, at the professional level, it's, it's in a way, I always think like you can't be what you can't see. So it's not really been presented in the minds of many women potentially just because they don't see any other women to emulate or, you know, in that capacity. So really, like you said, Julie Henner, the only other, you know, female right now, I'd say is like Lauren Fleshman with Wazell. Um, and it's wild, you know, showing up to some of these meets in the past year to two years. Um, I look around and I don't, I don't think about it when I, when I head to these meets, like, oh, I'm going to be like the only female. But then I look around and I look at my surroundings and I'm like, wow, yeah, no, it's, it's really like at the world championships in, uh, in Doha. I think I was the, the only female coach and I hadn't technically retired at that point, but I was, you know, there as a coach, I had a coaching pass, um, to help with the Bowerman athletes. Um, and yeah, I, I looked around, I'm like, man, I, I hope in 10 years, if I'm still doing this, that this isn't the case. Um, I hope that there's some, uh, diversity, um, in this arena and, you know, not just for the sake of diversity, but that there truly are great female coaches that are worthy of coaching. Um, so yeah, I think it gets back to, you can't be what you can't see. And I hope that, you know, my transition can showcase that you can be, um, at a high level as an athlete and you can make that transition to being a high level coach. So we've touched upon the transitions. We know you as a runner. We're starting to get to know you as a coach. Two other areas to explore, and you can pick which one we, which road we head down first. Um, Shalane, the mom, and or Shalane, the author slash chef. <laughs> so you're saying which which road do we want to talk about? <laughs> yeah, first, exactly. <laughs> You're okay, going well, down both. It seems like at the yeah. same time, we just can't talk about both at the same time. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about Jack. Cause I love, he's like one of my favorite subjects. So yeah. All right. So advice for yeah. new parents. Oh gosh. I don't know that I could, should be giving advice. No, you're uh, in the thick of it. You're exactly who should be giving advice. <laughs> oh, Cause uh, us parents that are kind of on the other side of infanthood, there's all kinds of hormones and stuff that makes you forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I think the biggest thing, the biggest adjustment having been an athlete, um, is, you know, sleep was such an important part of my training. It's like, you know, like eating your vegetables, you know, sleep is recovery. It's the best form of recovery. So, um, being a new parent, uh, my husband and I had been spoiled for many, many years of just, you know, getting adequate amounts of sleep, feeling amazingly refreshed when we woke up and functioning at a very high level for many hours. And that was abruptly taken away as a, as a parent and, you know, parent of a newborn. And that is the one thing that, you know, I miss probably the most in my former life. But other than that, Jack has been a big upgrade to my life. He has given, we talk about purpose, talk about like 
to me, he's like the ultimate point of life for me. It's like the point and the purpose of why I get up and he's like such a fun purpose. And I think for me, what I've tried to embrace, I don't know where I read it or heard it is like, if you're having fun as a parent, your kids are going to hopefully have fun. So I try to like, think about like, just your kids can feel what you're feeling. And so I try to kind of just have an atmosphere of being laid back as much as I can and fun and smiling um, and just playful. And I feel like that, you know, transcends and Jack feels that he's a really good natured, happy kid. And I'm sure some of that is in his genetics and DNA of just his nature. But I think presenting and creating an atmosphere and home of just us really thoroughly enjoying him and having fun with him and not look at it like as a chore um, to take care of him. Because let's admit it, you know, the first couple months um, are, there's a lot of giving and not a lot of like receiving back in terms of just like, they don't really acknowledge you. There's not a lot of smiles. There's not, there's not a really great form of communication yet established. Um, so you feel like you're giving a lot, like you're constantly taking care of them. And, and are you like, you are just looking for that one little smile, that one little acknowledgement, like, thank you. Um, it means the world to us, you know, when he's happy, we feel like, oh, we're doing a good job and that makes it all worthwhile. But to me, it's like, try to have as much fun as possible and a silly fun environment. Um, because I feel like your kids can feel that. That's my advice. I um I once heard that evolution programmed infants to smile the day before their parents were going to throw them out the window. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Perfect, perfect. Yep. <laughs> so, it what one one follow-up question there because I think that this is something I know I certainly went through and still go through as a new parent regardless of what you did before having a kid and that is that your routines in sense of structure is thrown off for a while. And I don't think I was ever someone with like an exercise addiction per se, but getting out, working toward a goal in moving my body was really important to me. And for a while, I felt like there was no way I could release from that. And not from moving my body, but from the structure. And Theo, very quickly, when he was young, showed me that I had to release from that, at least from that that focus on structure. Did you have a heart? And this probably goes back to even before you had Jack, as you transitioned away from running, had your surgeries into coaching. Did you have a hard time with that transition away from the structure? Like a lot of people that I've talked to, and myself included, it's almost like this compulsion where it's like, oh, if I don't get in my run or my weightlifting or meditation or gardening, whatever it is, you know, between nine and 10, then I'm going to feel like crap. And I think so many new parents have to bust through that. Um, did, did you have that experience at all? That is like absolutely so relatable to me. Yes, 100%. <laughs> um, in general, I always try to get my run done. And I'll get up at like the crack of dawn to do it in the morning because I have that mindset. If I wait till later in the day, like my energy is just going to wane. And I'm going to, in my head, I think, oh my God, I'm going to feel like crap. It's not even going to be worth it. I'm not even going to work out then because it's just like, I'll feel so terrible. And I've had to completely adjust <laughs> to not think that way. Um, it's been really hard to break that habit for me because it's just not realistic to always get the workout in in the morning like I like. Um, my husband is super 
supportive. And he realizes that like, that's like my little key to happiness is trying to do that. So we attempt to always make that happen for me. And he fortunately does like to work out later in the day. He's not necessarily a morning person. So we complement each other well in that aspect. But the reality is I've taken off a lot of days just so that I can spend more time with Jack or be there for when he needs me. And I don't love it. Like I used to feel super guilty about it. And I'm like, why do I feel guilty that I'm not running? And it's just ingrained in my head from being an athlete, like that you have to get your training in every day. And I'm not training for anything. It's just, I'm training for life, like just general fitness so that I can be a healthy mom and, you know, keep up with my athletes on some of the runs. Um, they're easy days. And but there's like still this compulsion in me and obsessiveness um, that is really hard to shake. And I catch myself like getting disgruntled and upset if I can't get it done in the morning. But I'm learning to like let go of it, not like get so stressed or upset about it. But that to me is like 100% relatable in that aspect. <laughs> All right, good. I'm not alone. I don't think you're alone. Um, I mean, I never came close to running at the same level as you or Steve. I'm like in a different orbit or galaxy that is light years away. And I had to stop running. Um, so, yeah. you know, me as a crappy mid-pack runner, I was really trying to get under three hours for the marathon, which for me was, was a Mount Everest kind of goal. And I got devastatingly close. I ran like a 301 in change, I think, or 302 in change. Um, and when Theo was born, I still had that goal that I was going to get under three hours. And my brain just wouldn't let me ease up on it. So I had to stop. I lasted like two weeks running after Theo was born. And I'm like, you know, this is a hobby. It shouldn't be stressful. Um, can't do it. So I stopped running and I started something totally new, which for me was strength training. And and that helped a lot. So, you know, it sounds like you've done a better job holding on to the thing. But I think it's important to note too, that sometimes it just requires a, a letting go and a shift. And who knows, maybe I'll come back to running, maybe not. Um, but yeah, I, I, I appreciate your experience a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my new hobby is not just like running, but doing trail running. So that's like the new adventure. Like I'll save up you know, maybe skip some runs during the week just so I can get out on a Sunday with some girlfriends and go do trail running. So it's like, it's still running, but I'm like shifting, um, different ways to, you know, get that runner's high, I guess you could say. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because like Brad, you just mentioned you'd had to give something up, but then you replaced it with granted the exercise is different, but it's still the thing, right? You still have this thing in your life that, gives you that that runner's high or that exercise high you know it's interesting hearing you guys listen talk about this obviously i don't have a kid but i know that same obsessive pull and how powerful it is and how it can make you a really great athlete or really good at what you do but like really bad at everything else (laughs) (laughs) but here here we all are like talking about how we struggle with it and like shift it to degree, but we can never fully, I don't think, like let it, let that thing go. It has to almost like shift somewhere else. 100%. Uh, I'm so like, I never thought of it like that, but it makes total sense. So for me, going from 301 or 302 down to 259 required so much effort. So I just shifted into a sport where I was starting, you know, at the equivalent of a 12 minute mile, trying to get to an 11 minute mile. 
so I could still get my fix of personal progress without it being so challenging and stressful. That is a hundred percent what I did. So, so on that topic, I have a question for Shalane because I think that's interesting because you've just shifted your goals. And Shalane just mentioned that she like went into trail running, which is something that I've done more often now as well as get off the roads, get on off the tracks, go, um, go into the trails. Do you think a little of that Shalane is due to, like the ingrained competitiveness, the ingrained knowledge of like splits and miles and all that stuff and going on the trails gives you some like freedom and some uh, novelty away from that? Absolutely. I think, you know, when we can't help it, Steve, we go on the track and all of a sudden we start like checking our watch. Like I can't help it. And I know that about myself. So um, and I don't want to compare myself to the former version of, you know, athletic version, Shalane. Um, so just new territory and something new is so refreshing. And I, I have no desire to compete in trail running. I just genuinely, I think when I was a professional athlete, I was so restricted as to where I would run and, you know, very, uh, just felt like I was missing out on certain things. Like I always wished I could go on these cool runs up in the mountains that I would like sit in, you know, wherever I was stationed at at high altitude and look up at these mountains, I'm like, man, those mountains are stunning. I wish I could go up and run there, but I was too afraid to hurt myself. And as a result, have poor performances because I was negligent about my body. And now that like, I obviously care about my body, but I don't feel this self-preservation of protecting my body. If I roll an ankle, like, oops, I'll take off a few days, not a big deal. Um, you know, it was devastating to hurt yourself as a professional and also consequentially like monetarily, it's a whole snowball effect. Um, the repercussions were too great. And so I used to sit at these high altitude camps in like, you know, Switzerland and, you know, these most beautiful places. And I used to sit there and like just drool over thinking about running in, in the mountains and exploring. And I love being outside. Like my perfect day would be to just literally be outside all day in the mountains and on trails. So it kind of gets that fix for me of doing something I've always wanted to do and dreamed of doing. And then just being outside for hours on end is just my jam. So um, to me, it's just like the perfect new little exploration and sport. And I'm already dreaming up like where once I can start traveling again, like I there's a like bucket list of just some races that I'm starting to look at that you know, just to enter, just to be a part of the atmosphere, um, but to, you know, just go explore some epic places around the world, um, you know, in the mountains would be incredible to me. Do you, and, and please be honest, Shalane, do you ever have the thought in passing of, huh, like a couple of years from now, my knees will be healed up. I'll be 40. I could go win a master's world championship. <laughs> Has that thought ever crossed? No. Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry, no. for, sorry for planting it then. <laughs> no, I mean, I've, it's funny, like, you know, I, it's because of all those years of training, like I know that I could get back to a decent place of fitness pretty quick. Um, so it's always good to know. Um, but my desire to ever really get truly fit again would only ever be if like my team needed me to be a rabbit and pace them to, you know, certain standards or whatever. But I'll be honest, like 
that's a lot of work because they're really apparently really fast now. So I thought, oh, you know, I could I could rabbit a few of them to some of, you know, their American records, which I've done for Shelby before. But now they're just too fast that I can't even help like rabbit. So that's kind of like deflated my dream of ever getting moderately fit again um, because they're just they're too good now. And they have each other. Apparently, it's like they they don't need me. So. Yeah, that dream has been crushed about being a BTC professional rabbit. That's gone. So, <laughs> well, welcome to the coaching club. When I started coaching college athletes, at first all I did was rabbit my men's team, and then it slowly degraded until I said, "Okay, I'm going to stay in good enough shape to rabbit my women's team." And then it yeah, just gets yeah. to, I'll go on some easy runs, and and we'll feel good about myself and uh, all that. But Brad, I I hope you were listening there because Brad always tries to push me to get back into like marathon racing. And I say the exact same thing you did, Shalane, yeah. which is like, I know what it takes to get there. And at this point in my life, I don't have any desire to do that. No, there's too much like sacrificing of time and dedication. It takes a lot of work and I respect how much work it takes and it's not easy and it can be fun, but I've already had that fun. I'm done with it. Well, <laughs> so. to, to, to defend myself, for those of you that haven't um, stayed at the same hotel as former world-class runners, uh, Steve knows where I'm going with this. Before we launched Peak Performance, we were at this hotel in Boston and it was just a miserable morning. It was rainy. We were downtown. So there wasn't a good place to run. This is back in my running days. And I went on the treadmill for a, you know, shake out 830 pace, just get the nerves out before our book is officially launched into the world. And Steve freaking takes off his shirt, puts the treadmill on, I don't know, Elliot Kipchoge speed, 18 miles an hour. The whole gym is shaking. And Steve is like tweeting about our book from the treadmill while he's breaking the machine. And I can't get that memory out of my mind. So that's why I push Steve to run fast. Because if that's an easy run, the next time we launch a book together, I want to see what Steve at a hotel gym doing a hard run looks like. That's awesome. It's a good memory. <laughs> um, but that's, right. Oh, go ahead, Steve. Sorry. I was just going to say, but that's like... There's this understanding of the nuance of it. Like, and Shalane knows this, like, to get to like 80%, which is still really freaking fit, you know, compared to most in the world, isn't that difficult. But to go from 80 or 85% to 95 to 100 is so hard and takes so much work. So what you're, what you're seeing there, Brad, what you saw was, God's gift and talent going most of the way and decades of training and that's it. But the rest of the way is just so hard. And it just like, I think it's, it's like knowing what you're getting into. And this goes beyond running is it's like knowing if this is the thing that you want to pursue, it's knowing what it actually takes and being honest with yourself. If, if you want to commit to that. Well, I think both of you, because a question that I sometimes get asked is, you know, why don't you post about any of your workouts? Or why do you never post videos of you training or pictures? And it's because I hang out with people like you. So like, I'm not an athlete. You know, my, my, my writing orbit looks at me like I'm the best athlete on the planet. And I'm just shaking my head like, you guys have no idea. Stop posting about your 15 mile run at eight minute pace. <laughs> um, so thank you guys for keeping me, um, for keeping me humble. So, okay. On writing, it's the last big topic that we wanted to chat with you about Shalane. Um, 
I know you and Elise have something in the works. I'm not sure if you can say more yet, but if you can, we'd love to hear about it. And if not, we'll hold off on that for another time. Oh, no, I can talk about it for sure. Um, We are set to publish our third cookbook. It is a breakfast cookbook. It's called Rise and Run. We realized that um, our fans, well, let's just put it this way. Runners in general and endurance athletes love breakfast. They always want something before the run, something after the run, and then they want like a brunch. So it's like three breakfasts in a day for a lot of, you know, endurance athletes and runners specifically, I think, just crave a good breakfast. Um, So this goes beyond just food. It's also a bit of a training manual, um, more information sharing from my career, some of the gurus that I use as uh, resources, um, including yourself, Brad, and you know my physical therapist, uh, Pilates instructor, just a lot of great information beyond you know, how to cook and how to fuel well. Um, but there are obviously some really drool worthy recipes in there that we're super pumped about. Um, but yeah, there's just more to it, sharing more of ourselves. Um, we're in the midst of finalizing and submitting, um, this book. And we just did a bunch of, uh, photos for the book because, you know, I, I like cookbooks that have great photography. So we've, really taken the time to do some great lifestyle shots um, of where we are living and running and just like life in general, including our kids. And um, so it's an all-encompassing book, a lot more information beyond just food, which obviously is really important, but um, I think it's going to be fun to share with people uh, more of the training and like mental aspects that go along with it. Speaking of imposter syndrome, you always give me imposter syndrome um, because it's, it's a good real live in real time demonstration. Every time Shalane says something like that, um, I get imposter syndrome because I remember the first time you reached out and you said, hey, can we chat about some of the things I'm going through? I'm like, yeah, but I don't have anything to offer you. Um, so I think it's good just to, to come back to that, that we all experience that um, quite a bit. All right. So my follow-up question to that is, and I'm not going to lie, I was kind of, my brain was going here anyways to set this up. So if I zoom out and step back and look at the last 10 years, even the last five years of your life, it seems just like a crazy freaking whirlwind. So top of your sport, retirement, a brief foray into broadcasting, coaching, two books released, two books hit New York Times bestseller list, Adopt a child, new parenthood, working on another book project. And and again, this is all within five years. And I get that these are good things and, and it's not like a cancer diagnosis or terrible things, although there were two knee surgeries in there. Do you feel like you've got like this you know, earlier in the show I wrote down you said like the athlete Shalane. Is there like a Shalane that just is steady throughout all of this? Well, what do you mean by steady? Like, like, do you have a sense of self that is deeper than all of these different roles or lenses that you wear? Um, The way that I'll say it is this. My grandma once told me that she looks in the mirror and like she sees this 85-year-old body, but she still feels like a 30-year-old kid. When you look in the mirror, you see yourself with your writer's I guess writers don't wear hat, but your writer's outfit on or your singlet for racing or your 
collared shirt for coaching or your barfed on shirt for parenthood. Um, (laughs) How do you stay in touch or do you feel like you have this sense of identity that's underneath all that? Uh, Yeah, I don't even know how to really answer that, I guess. Um, I think it gets back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier is that I think I've just been led um, by like surrounding myself with really good people. And I feel like um, I'm just like, I, I basically branch out in areas where like I'm gravitated towards like the people and those interests. And, but I don't, yeah, I guess I don't look at myself and think of myself as any one of those things. I'm just like this potpourri mix of a lot of things. Um, but I'm led by, I think the circle of people that it involves, like how I spend my time, um, like with the the people that are in those like, you know, entities and those categories, I guess you could say is like what drives me towards them. Like why I want to stay with BTC and coaches because I just genuinely love the people that I get to work with. And that just leads to, I think, great things. And so I think I'm just like led and driven by just surrounding myself with good people. And I feel like that's the way to go. And like we were talking about that is like, you want to just always be interacting and surrounded by people that make you happy and excited and challenged. And um, so if I look at myself in the mirror, like I don't think of myself as any one of those things. It's like a good potpourri mix. And I think it's driven my like, I'm just driven by surrounding myself and being with those people. So that's what gets me excited to do whatever I do. <laughs> that makes sense. I don't even know if that's an answer. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's a brilliant answer. Cause I was gonna, I was gonna ask you how you, if you struggle with that identity component as well. And I think you like captured like one of the best, um, you know, pieces of advice you could give anyone, which is like, you aren't all of those, like you're not one of those things singularly you're this potpourri mix of all of these things that you do. Cause you know, tying this back to the beginning, you, you mentioned the uh, documentary weight of gold. And a lot of that happens because we tie our identity so firmly and strongly to one thing. And then that, when that one thing is gone, like we're kind of left with this hole. And what I'm hearing from you is that like you have all these different interests and you're, allow yourself to explore them and then you surround yourself with people who like can help aid support in those areas. And that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah, totally. And, and as we've talked about, you know, you can only go all in at certain times. And I, fortunately I feel like, you know, it seems like maybe that that's like a lot on the plate. And so you wouldn't be that good. Cause if like you're too diversified, then the, the quality of the product goes down. But because I surround myself with such good people, they don't like let me fail or let me not produce something that's wonderful and great. Um, and then I think just like the seasons of, um, just what I do, uh, seem to complement each other well. Like I obviously have to do quite a bit of planning to make it happen that way. But, you know, there's certain stretches that are just like, I'm all in on the book right now because we have, um, you know, a date that we have to hand in our manuscript. Um, But fortunately, like our athletes are on a break right now. So um, as we talked about that pendulum um, swinging, it's, you know, fortunately, there's certain areas that um, during the calendar year, I can go all in so that I make sure and guarantee it's a good product. But that being said, that support system and 
I just have people around me that care deeply as well, as much as I do. And so we just like, we won't let each other fail at it because it's a lot, but, um, but fortunately I've got, got that team. So it's good. (laughs) And that team is so important to, um, during those periods of disorder or discombobulation, disorientation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think it's a really good point in place to end on, um, I do want to call attention. So Steve and I are going to do a, a couple of podcasts, particularly around mental health this month, because it's Suicide Awareness Month. And we had no idea that um, we touch on mental health here. But just for listeners, like you hear Shalane, and I'm so fortunate to know Shalane pretty well, is this happy, energetic, purpose-driven person. And that, to me, is exactly who you are. And yet, you can still go through times where you don't feel that way and where you don't feel a sense of meaning or purpose. Um, And I think the more that we can normalize that, the better. Because then when people find themselves in those holes, whether it's after a transition, whether it's for some other reason, um, they don't feel like they're alone or like something is inherently wrong with them. But in fact, a part of living a full, meaningful life is at times perhaps losing meaning, and that's okay. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing um, that in particular, and of course, everything else, um, Shalane. So Steve, unless you have anything to add, um, thank you so much, Shalane. We're both huge fans. We love you. We want you on this podcast as often <laughs> as you want to be on this podcast, because um, we just really enjoy talking to you. Okay. Well, that sounds good. Hopefully I remain interesting and have some good content. So, <laughs> uh, but no, honestly, it's awesome to talk to you guys. I feel like it's just catching up with friends. So I appreciate um, the conversation and I look forward to chatting again. Thanks so much, Shalane. That was fantastic. And for listeners, we know you enjoyed that and took away some wonderful insights from Shalane. On a future podcast, we're going to host an AMA, which means ask Brad and I anything, and we'll give you the best answer that we have on anything performance and well-being you might be struggling with or wondering about. Uh, Shoot it our way. So the best way to get in contact with us or to send those suggestions are to go to the website, thegrowtheq.com, and then fill out the contact listed under the contact page. Just click that, send us an email, say AMA in the comments, and we'll do our best to answer your question on our podcast and upcoming episode. So until then, enjoy.